On today's Teaching in Higher Ed, episode number 79, I speak with Dr. Robin Page about the potential impact of stereotype threat inside and outside our classrooms. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Robin Page. She received her doctorate in development sociology from Cornell University in 2008, and her research focuses on gender, migration, and alternative food systems in the U.S. and Mexico. Her current research is a qualitative study of women who remain behind their husbands as they migrate from Mexico to the U.S. and the social and emotional consequences for women during long periods of family separation. She works in the Rice Center for Teaching Excellence with Josh Eiler, who is a former guest a few times now, and she has an extensive background in service learning, faculty development, undergraduate education, and curriculum and program development across the disciplines. Robin is the Assistant Director for the Center for Teaching Excellence, and she has a diverse background in undergraduate education teaching at a wide variety of educational institutions, from the community college to land-grant and private universities. Dr. Robin Page, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. What is something that we should know about you to really understand who you are as a person? Okay, well, one thing I think that I don't end up sharing with a lot of people that a lot of people um, at Rice University where I, I work know is that I actually live on campus with the students. Rice University is a residential college system, which means majority of the students live on campus for at least three, if not four of the years, and we have uh, 11 residential colleges at Rice that the students live at, and each residential college has a master and two residential associates, and then three of those colleges have what are called head resident fellows, um, which means that they're essentially bigger colleges, so they needed a few more people to live on (laughs) campus with them. And so masters, head resident fellows, residential associates are, are um, faculty who live with the students in these colleges, interact with them, eat with them, um, you know, have a very kind of informal as well as formal relationship with them. So my partner, myself, and our uh, nine-month-old daughter live in the dorms with about 300 students. This is really fascinating to me as someone who has taught now 10 years in undergrad. That doesn't sound really appealing to me. And what was it about (laughs) it that sounded appealing to you and your partner? It didn't really sound appealing to me at first. It sounded appealing to my, um, my partner, I think, because he liked the idea of 
having three free meals a day. <laughs> He'll probably kill me for saying that. But um, after I had been here for a year, because I didn't, I never lived on campus as an undergraduate. I lived off campus the whole time. And so I'd never lived on campus. So the idea of living on campus as a non-student was really scary to me. But after being here for a year and getting to understand what the residential college system was and being able to have that kind of informal outside of the class relationship with students, I was really appealing to me. And so I, I kind of had to be convinced myself, but being here for a year really convinced me. And this is our third year living on campus. So, so far we've really enjoyed it. I'm so glad that you accepted the invitation to come on the show. And I'll, I'll say up front that it's been now more than a year that I've been doing the podcast, about a year and a half. And I certainly have felt remiss that this is the first direct head-on time we're having an episode about something related to race and ethnicity. And I have felt apprehensive about just exactly how do you unpack this because you can't certainly fit it into an episode. And Josh Eiler, who's been on the show a couple of times before, he recommended both the subject of stereotype threat and also yourself to come on the show. And I'm so glad that we are doing this today. But for people listening, I want them to know that it's just the start of what I hope to be a much lengthier conversation. And to begin with, if you could just share what is the definition of stereotype threat, and then we can begin to unpack it and look at some of the research. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I think this is, I'm really impressed that you're doing this podcast. And I think it's a really important issue. And this is a really great time to be talking about it because of what's going on you know, in campuses across the U.S. regarding race and campus culture right now, as well as, you know, right now the Supreme Court um, hearing the, the UT Austin case. So I think this is a, a great time to start talking about these things in higher education. So the term stereotype threat was coined by Claude Steele and Joshua Aronson in their 1995 paper that was in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, I'm pretty sure. And so a, a definition that I think is really good that comes from Steele is when a person's identity has a negative stereotype attached to it, and that person engages in important activities that are relevant to that stereotype. Some key points of that definition are that the identity has to be salient to the person. So there could be stereotypes about an identity that that person has or that somebody else pins on to that person, but if it isn't salient for them, then that stereotype threat isn't likely to be present. And then the domain or the activity that is important regarding that stereotype also has to be important to the person. And there has to be a negative association with that identity, or in some cases, um, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about a little later, a positive identity can also have have an effect in that situation. So the key is really, I think it brings it back to the individual. It has to be something that's salient to them, um, and it has to be an activity or a domain that's really important to them. I know you mentioned that there are positive aspects of stereotype threat, but but most of the research, I believe, is on the more negative aspects to it. Is that a correct correct assumption yes. to make? Yeah, or not assumption, the negative but... impact that it can have. Mostly on most of the research is on the negative impact it can have on 
assessments of learning, and then there's some research that points to that it can actually impact learning itself. Um, so those distinctions are definitely made. Are, is it impacting the learning or is it impacting the assessment of the learning? And we can ask the question, is it impacting both what they would call a double jeopardy? So let's go through an example then, and let's start with a negative impact example and, and maybe walk us through stereotype threat for a particular made up person. What, what would it look okay, like for so, a person? So for example, I think a, a really good example would be uh, women in math, right? So there's the stereotype that exists in our society and our culture that women aren't as good at math um, as men are. And so if a, a woman is entering into, let's use the assessment because that's what most of the research has been done on, a math test, carrying that knowledge that, you know, the person who's giving me this test, the person who's going to grade this test doesn't think I'm as good, likely, that because I'm a woman, I won't be as good as a male um, in doing math, that that'll create some form of anxiety, an added anxiety, right? Because most test taking is anxious for people. And so for this, for this woman, young woman going in taking the test, having that added anxiety of I'm not expected to do well because I'm a woman, the research points to it impacting a, a working memory, that they're dealing with this kind of anxiety, um, the kind of mental psychological work of the stereotype is taking away from their ability to perform on the exam. What's interesting, so there we have the identity that's salient being a woman, um, and then the domain is taking a math test. Now, what's interesting is the research points to it has, stereotype has a much bigger impact for those that strongly identify with a domain. So, if it's a young woman coming in who sees herself as a mathematician who highly values her math skills, it'll have a greater negative impact on her performance than if she was just kind of like, well, you know, I've heard that <clears throat> women don't do as well as math, um, but I'm not really a math person. I'm in the humanities. So those who strongly identify with a domain are going to have a stronger negative impact. And that I, I might, I'm just trying to apply your example to things I can think about. I, I think I oftentimes hear from people who are business majors and mm -hmm. young women who are business majors who say, I'm not good at math, but would that be because they want to be a business major, which they perceive as requiring those math skills and them not having it, or maybe the parents are pressuring them to be a business major? Is that where the added stress would come in because that, that being a business major is important to them? It would more be the idea that to be a business major, they have to be good at math, right? So... I think it would be, I guess it would be in the sense you're saying if they strongly identify with being a business major, math skills are required, but girl, women aren't seen as good at math, then that would be something, yes, that would have a stronger, is, is shown to have a stronger negative effect on their performance. Yeah, that's certainly something I see. And what I've 
I have not seen it associated with stereotype threat, and maybe it's just because I haven't done my reading as much as I should. But the idea <laughs> that in other countries, especially in some Asian countries, the opposite is told to our young people. We tell the little girls how great they are at math, and we tell the little boys that they're not good at math. And of course, the opposite of what we see here in the in America ends up being true for them. And so I tell that story sometimes to my students that, gosh, you think that you're not good. Think, and, they, and they oftentimes believe that women are worse at math than men. And so the whole I can see the whole stereotype threat playing out for them, for sure. Mm-hmm. And one of the key findings with stereotype threat is what they call the priming of a stereotype. So, for example, if keeping with the example of women and math, if women are given, you know, if they go into a test and they're asked at the beginning of the test to identify some demographic information, right? Your name, your age, your major, your gender. If they're primed and they're asked their gender, then they'll perform worse on that assessment than if there was no, you know, bubble or question of fill in your gender. Mm. Um, So the priming of those identities is what they've been able to show with research is is also very key. And with your example, it, it reminded me of some recent research where they actually talk about what they call a stereotype boost. Um, so this is kind of one of the positive effects. It's hard to say that positive effect <laughs> of stereotype threat is they had young women, young Asian women taking, Asian American women taking a math assessment And when they prime them for their race and ethnicity, they performed better on the assessment. When they prime them for the gender, they performed worse. Uh So because there's a stereotype that Asian Americans are better at math, that positive stereotype had a boost for their performance. But then when they turned around and primed them for the negative stereotypes that women aren't as good at math, it had a negative effect on their performance. So that's where they were trying to show kind of the, the stereotype boost. Now, I, because I'm a sociologist, I always think it's really important to point out these things are much more complicated. So even there, though there might be a stereotype, um, what we would call like a positive stereotype, which Asian Americans have the model minority stereotype, this stereotype in the case of math, that they're better at math, that that can have really negative consequences in general for Asian American students. They've shown in studies that Asian American students are less likely to receive help from their teachers. Um, teachers are less likely to um, approach students in math class, Asian American students in math classes to see if they need assistance. So that positive stereotype can actually have a negative effect on learning. Now that's separate from the stereotype threat, but I always think it's good to kind of think about this contextually. It's not, you know, maybe causing a boost in one situation, but not in another. Yeah, I can picture, of course, I try to think frequently about people that listen to the show and I could see that the a criticism potentially being exactly the complexity that you just talked about. We're certainly not saying that this is, this is the ticket. And if we could just solve this one thing, everyone's going to do better on their learning outcomes. And then the other, yeah, yeah. the other thing I appreciate that's underlying what what you're saying is that we all are capable of this, whether or not we're cognizant of it. 
And I've mentioned before on the show, but I'll say it again, I use an attendance app on my iPhone. And one of the things I use it for most is to randomly call on students. And I know that I would I mean, I'd like to think ideally that I wouldn't have stereotypes that would ever play out in the classroom. And and yet I I think the first thing we can do to become better at helping all of our students in the classroom is recognize we would have weak points in our teaching and biases we're not even aware of. And having something that randomly calls on people would, would certainly help with that. Absolutely. Could we do another example of stereotype threat research that that might help us round out beyond the issues of men versus women, but perhaps on some of the the race and ethnicity? Yeah, definitely. I think the, the original paper by Steele and Aronson is a, a really good example because it brings up some of the things we haven't had a chance to to talk about yet. So they gave a verbal test. They introduced a verbal test as a diagnostic of ability uh, correlated or corrected for with SAT scores, and they found that the the black students tended to perform worse than the white students. And that was when the test was introduced as a diagnostic test, so diagnostic of ability. And so that's also a really key point with stereotype threat is that when something is seen as determining ability or intelligence or kind of proving something as opposed to an assessment that might be about improving learning. Um, So proving learning versus improving learning that um, it had an impact on uh, the verbal test. So that was the, the original study. Could you talk a little bit more about the proving versus improving learning distinction? So, for example, we can provide a lot of assignments or quizzes, so like typical um, or standard tests and quizzes in classes where we communicate to students that the feedback on these is more about improving your learning, right? So, when we give students the impression that um, there is kind of no fixed level of intelligence that students can improve and they can learn, that uh, that has a very different impact than when students are given a diagnostic test or this is where you're going to prove that you've learned something or proved how intelligent you are. So one of the things I was going to mention about kind of interventions as we're talking about this is communicating to students about the idea, which is really popular right now in kind of the the mindset discussion of having a fixed intelligence versus a a plastic or kind of malleable intelligence. So communicating to students that idea has been shown as one of the ways, one of the kind of interventions that can work against stereotype threat in the classroom. Most of the early research on stereotype threat was about these kind of assessments of um, of being diagnostic. And so a lot of those studies showed that just taking away or having um, what, what is changing in that experiment, is this a diagnostic assessment or is this just an activity had a, a great impact on student performance. 
Is part of what you're suggesting that we could do more of the low stakes or no stakes assessment along the way in our classes that and and be very, very purposeful in explaining that these are designed to help improve your learning, not necessarily prove to me what you know? Am I getting that part of it correct? Yes, yes. That a lot of the assessment is for feedback um, to help students improve their learning because communicating to students that learning is an intelligence is something that, you know, to have kind of that growth mindset that Dweck talks about, that we can improve, that it's not coming into a class or coming into an assessment needing to prove one's intelligence as if it's a static thing. Yeah. What are some of the criticisms that people have had of Steele's research about, or or perhaps even broader, just stereotype threat research in general? I think, well, there's there's criticisms of of kind of the the different ways, obviously, in the research that the experiments are done, which is kind of out outside of my expertise because I'm not a psychologist. I don't do experimental um, methodology, but I would say one of the biggest criticisms, and Steele has actually talked about this himself, is the idea that it can perpetuate a kind of, well, it's all in your head. All you have to do is just not believe the stereotypes, um, I would say is one of the, the main criticisms of it, that if we tell students, well, you know, okay, there's these stereotypes in society that let's say women aren't good at math or African-Americans aren't as, as good in higher education as white students, then they just need to change their mindset. So it puts it back onto the individual student, right? That it's a problem of the individual student and it's a problem of perception as opposed to a problem kind of in the larger context of our society, but definitely in higher education as well as within the classroom. So I would say that is one of the uh, the main criticisms. Another criticism would be that the idea that we need to understand that racism is real. So there's a difference between a perceived threat for some and real racism that exists on a daily basis for many people in our society. And I think one of the, in his book, uh, Whistling Vivaldi, Claude Steele talks about a, a few examples. One example is of a black man who ended up becoming a, a New York Times journalist. And he talks about kind of his ability to alter what he calls alter public space in that just as a young black man moving through social space, people may avoid him or move, you know, to the other side of the street or fear going in an elevator with him. And that that's the daily experience for him. And, and that's part of what he grew up with as a, as a stereotype threat, but it was, you know, pervasive in his life, not just within education. And then he talks about another example of a young white student in a college classroom on African-American history and how the stereotype that, you know, he he doesn't know what it is to experience race in American society impacted his ability to learn in that classroom. And the criticism there would be that, you know, those are vastly different 
experiences of race in our society. So the consequences of not being able to do well in one class because of stereotype threat versus having it be a pervasive aspect of your life have very different consequences, um, both just in one's life, but also in one's experience going through higher education. So I would say those are kind of two main criticisms of uh, the concept of stereotype threat. Robin, you're talking about that sort of reminds me why I have been somewhat reluctant to even talk about issues of race and ethnicity on the class previously, because it does feel like this is just one slice of such a larger picture. And I appreciate how you've articulated that in terms of and, and nice to know, actually, that he has articulated that those concerns about his own research. That sounds like a powerful read. I've not read that that book before. In the introduction, Robin, you shared that you not only have experience in the classroom teaching our students, but also outside the classroom. And I wonder if you could share a bit about some of the issues of stereotype threat that you see happening outside the classroom. The issues that students have brought to me, I would say in the, in the three years that I've lived on campus with students, is a campus culture that is afraid to really bring up issues of race and racism on campus and creates kind of um, the idea of a colorblind society and how damaging that can be for students of color on campus when they feel that the pressure to be colorblind means that the experiences that they have that are that are very real that can impact just a, their quality of life as human beings, but also their ability to do well in their college careers, that if we don't talk about those issues, if we don't bring them to the forefront, and it's very hard to do that because nobody wants to talk about, you know, race and inequality and nobody wants, or even, you know, gender and inequality going beyond just the race issue. And that if we don't talk about those and we're not really honest with ourselves about those, then it's really hard to address a lot of these issues. And so even, you know, from the classroom as a, as a teacher in the class, right, those are, are hard things that we ourselves need to, to look at when, when we're teaching our classes is, you know, who's not only how, what are my interactions with students like, but, you know, who's, who's being represented here in, in the classroom? Is, am I making my class as inclusive as possible? And, Maybe I maybe there's things I'm missing that I don't know about and I need to expand my my horizons to kind of know what inclusivity looks like. So I think those that the campus culture, like a classroom culture, really needs to be upfront and honest with discussing race and, and kind of the the difficult feelings about it. And I think a lot of uh, campuses are trying to to do that right now. When I see what's going on on and reading about what's going on on some other college campuses and trying to bring these issues into discussion as as colleges or universities is that students of color are often left to be the ones to uh, say, you know, we need to talk about these issues. And so it's me, this is me kind of putting on my sociologist hat right now, but I think we all we all need to realize that um, you know race is something that 
defines all of us, that there's none of us who are race free or race neutral, that, you know, being white is also a, a racial construction. And so kind of being able to see all of ourselves as part of that conversation is really important. And when I taught race and ethnicity, that is often how I would start my first day of class is I would say, you know, well, what, you know, you're probably looking at me thinking, what does this white woman have to tell me about race? And then I would talk about, well, you know, white as a racial category is also socially constructed. And, you know, I'm part of, I'm part of this process too. And so I think that's one of the things when we're, we're thinking about stereotype threat that for students, if they feel that, you know, that these stereotypes are pervasive in their lives, um, that they're part of um, their experience as students, that to have a space to talk about it instead of having a a space that says, well, we don't really talk about those things because we don't see race as a problem on our campus can really be something that doesn't provide a space for students to talk about race. Um, And that's one thing I've heard living among students is not feeling that they can really talk about their own experiences sometimes on campus cultures where people want to believe that we live in a colorblind Mm -hmm. society. And one of the, the things that we can do either on our campuses or in the classroom is create a space of accountability without you know, saying you're a bad person for thinking that, that if we, we open up a space where students can talk about race or talk about gender in a way where they say, where someone can turn around and say, wait, whoa, you know, what you just said really bothered me in these ways and see it as a learning experience as opposed to, oh no, if I said that, that means I'm a horrible person. I think those are the best ways um, in our classrooms on the campus or just, you know, sitting and having lunch with a student or just another person doesn't even have to be in an educational context is to kind of have, you know, you can be accountable for your ideas, but we also have to see that ideas and beliefs can change, you know, that, that students can kind of work through those things and, and be able to, to see opposing ideas or challenges to their ideas in ways that aren't seen as entirely threatening. One thing I was going to mention, and we're, as we're kind of talking about talking to students about these things, being transparent or giving students spaces to, to talk about race and ethnicity or gender inequality, is we do have to be careful. One thing I've observed in my own teaching is that talking about inequality, because uh, sociologists do a lot of that <laughs> in classrooms, can actually be a priming for students. So I have spent most of my time in higher education teaching at the community college. And I worked at a community college that was a uh, labeled as a Hispanic-serving institution. So the majority of our students were first-generation students to college, second-generation students in the United States, and, and Latino students. And... I would often, in my race and ethnicity classes, I found it really important to talk about students in education and a lot of the inequalities that they experienced and a lot of the roadblocks to access. 
And what I found is that in the beginning, students had a, a kind of sigh of relief, like, oh, I thought it was all me. Mm. <laughs> I thought I was the one who wasn't succeeding. But now I realize that there were all these kind of obstacles. You know, they didn't absolve themselves of individual responsibility, but they said, oh, there's some other things going on here that might have made it difficult for me um, when pursuing a college education. But I also found that as a course went on, students would start to say things, well, like, what's the point then? If all of this, if there's all these obstacles, they would start to get really apathetic. And, you know, and as a young teacher, that was exactly the opposite of what I wanted to do for them. So there has to be, I, I learned, um, there has to be a balance of kind of teaching about inequalities in a way that shows students kind of the complexity of our society, but at the same time doesn't become a means of moving students towards kind of apathy and um, kind of the, the, well, what's the point attitude. So um, that's one thing I really learned through working with students and, and kind of knowing more about stereotype threat, both in the classroom, but also, I think that's something we can think about outside of the classroom, just on our own campuses. Well, this is the point in the show in which we shift over and do recommendations. And I'm going to give mine real quick and then pass the ball back over to you. I have two quick recommendations. One is very related to what we've discussed today. There was a recent episode of This American Life. It was number 573, and I will link to it in the show notes. And it was called Status Update. And the two stories that especially stand out to me, one is about young teenage girls that are talking about their communication on Instagram. And it was like speaking to very young linguists about this whole set of proper ways that you're supposed to tell the other young woman how beautiful she is and what she's supposed to say back and how if you don't like it, but you comment what that means. And it was just a fascinating look at a language that is completely incomprehensible to me, but was fun to see through these young women's eyes. And on that same episode, there was a conversation because we're talking about race and ethnicity. And many of you might have heard of ta Coates, who has written a very powerful book, A Letter to His Son. But it's a conversation with him and a friend of his who's a producer for This American Life named Neil Drumming. And they're talking a little bit about how fame has changed their friendship and wealth has changed their friendship. And it was just a delightful conversation to look at the complexities involved with their shared past and then how life has changed a bit for him as he has become so famous. It was really a fun, a fun listen and to think about their friendship. And what do you have, Robin, to recommend for us today? Well, the first thing I would recommend is, like I mentioned earlier, the Whistling Vivaldi book, if anybody's interested in looking a little more into the stereotype threat. Um, the other thing that I think, if anybody's thinking, how might I talk about some of these issues in the classroom, a great uh, blog is called Sociological Images, and it has a diversity of sociological themes, but there's a lot on race and ethnicity, and it deals with a lot in the the popular uh, media. Uh, and then the third thing, I have three recommendations, is um, to kind of create what I would call a stereotype, stereotype safe environment in your classes is the first thing to do would just be to create 
um, a great environment in your class. And the thing I suggest for that is food. I, um, as a young sociologist, as a young uh, female sociologist, I often resisted bringing food into the classroom because I didn't want to reinforce this stereotype of, you know, kind of the caretaker woman bringing food to care for her students. But I do teach a class on the sociology of food. And this semester I had students, we had food every single class period. I had the students bring some food that was related to the, the readings for that week. And having food across the entire semester and in every class period just created this very kind of relaxed and engaging um, environment. It gave something, a common um, experience for students. They're, they're all eating the same food. So it gave students who might not otherwise talk to each other, it gave them something in common to talk about. And then to start, you know, expanding from there. And so I think that, you know, it's a great way. And you can always put it on to students that they bring it every week. <laughs> but I think that's a great way to start creating kind of community in the classroom and moving towards kind of one of these environments where um, some of these kind of barriers and stereotypes start to get broken down a little bit. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for all the recommendations. And Robin, I also want to just thank you again for investing your time. I know it's so precious, especially this time of the year. And with a little one and with your students, I just really appreciate you investing the time to contribute to all the people who are looking to improve our teaching. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you and the whole conversation. Thanks once again to Robin for joining me on the show. And I realized I said I had two recommendations and I only mentioned the This American Life episode. My second recommendation is actually not mine. It's from Dave Stahoviak, who you may have met on prior episodes. He has taught in higher ed and also happens to be married to me. And he is recommending a course that he's now gone through for three years. It's put out by Michael Hyatt, and it's called Five Days to Your Best Year Ever. It's an online course. And again, he's done it prior to this year and will be doing it again this year and has really found it to be a wonderful framework for planning out what's important to him in the year to come and how to execute on those things that are most important. And I will say in advance, we do have a referral link, but it is not one of those things we're trying to make money off of you for something we wouldn't pay for ourselves. It is a course, again, that Dave's been through for three years and will be paying for and doing again this year. But if you're interested, you can go to coachingforleaders.com slash best 2016. Again, that was coachingforleaders.com slash best 2016. And I will have a link to that in the show notes under the recommendations in case you are in your car or walking around your lake right now and don't have time to write it down. Thanks once again for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you would like to read about the articles and other resources that Robin and I mentioned on this episode, you can do so at teachinginhighered.com slash 79. And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update, that's a great way to get all of those links automatically in your inbox each week, along with on most weeks, an article about either teaching or productivity. And you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I always welcome your feedback. You can do that at, on Twitter. I'm at Bonnie 
B-O-N-N-I-208 and love to connect with so many of you there or at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.